Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Without this week, we wouldn't be here. Without this week, we would have nothing to celebrate. Without this week, um, we would be stuck in our sin and we would uh, be, be uh, destined for hell. But because of this week, we can rejoice. We can praise the Lord. We can glorify his name because his son has come. He's, he's died on the cross and he's risen from the grave for you and I. This is mission critical week for Jesus Christ. And uh, I think we can learn a lot from his life uh, this morning as we're going to consider uh, the very beginning of this week, Sunday, nearly 2,000 years ago, as we consider the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. You have a Bible. Open up with me to Luke chapter 19 this morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Make sure you get one. Uh, Luke chapter 19. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. And uh, uh, we are departing our verse-by-verse study through the book of 2 Timothy for the next two weeks. Uh, we're going to be considering, again, the most crucial week of Jesus' life, beginning with Palm Sunday, which is today, and then Resurrection Sunday, which is next Sunday. And so um, if you're with me on Luke chapter 19, stand with me, and we're going to read our account this morning of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Draw your attention to verse 28. Where we read, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, uh, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we are so excited to celebrate this week, Lord. And yet it's a somber week at the same time, understanding the penalty that was paid, the cost of Jesus to deliver us from death to life. And so we ask you this, this, during this week, Lord, that we would be meditating on the life of Jesus. But this morning, we ask you to begin that meditation as we consider Jesus fulfilling his mission. And may that, Lord, if we're not on mission, may it call us back to our mission. If we are on mission, Lord, may it become fuel for us to continue on, to be steadfast in all that you've called us to do while we await your return or before we go to be with you, Lord. We ask you to come now by the power of your Holy Spirit and speak to us, teach us. We open our hearts to you, Lord. We invite you in 100%. Do whatever you want to do, Lord. We lift these things to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine with me that you, you have won the lottery. Right? And and so you go to the, wherever the lottery office is, and you're there to receive your prize, and you say, well, I only want part of it. I don't really want all of it. I only want part of it. That would be absolutely insane, wouldn't it, to settle for less? 
I mean, you've won all of it, and yet you're saying, nah, I only want some of it. That's exactly what many Christians do with the victory that we've been given through Jesus Christ. They settle for less. Um, by faith, we have won the lottery, so to speak. Victory has been given to us. And yet I wonder how many of us here today settle for only receiving a fraction of the prize that we've been given. You say like, oh, I don't know, pastor, I feel really victorious. Well, let me let you in on a little secret this morning. I don't care how victorious you feel, there's more. There's more victory to be had in your life. We serve a God who does exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or dream of. And so no matter what your state is today, do not be complacent. There is more. The prize is greater than you could even imagine. And uh, I hope that you will see that this morning, that the victory that we've been given through Jesus Christ is far greater and far more vast than we have yet to experience here. And God wants to, for you to experience everything, everything that he has for you. Are you on board with that? Do you want to receive everything that God has for you this morning? Just like three of you. That's awesome, man. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> we, hey, listen, I'm fired up, man, because this, this right here, this is a great message for Christians who are struggling in their walk. And I don't know about you, but I struggle in my walk sometimes. I want to find greater victory in Christ, and, and this message right here will help you uh, take note of some things that Christ has done for you so that you can experience these things. I want to show you from uh, this text this morning uh, the, 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 the more victory that you can uh, realize in your life. The title of my message is The Way to Victory, The Way to Victory, and uh, as we have read, we, we are in triumphal entry mode this morning. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to bring victory. And uh, it, it's probably not in the, in the way that many people thought that victory was going to come, though. And isn't that the case in your life usually? It, it, God does something completely different. He kind of comes out of the side with something, and you're just like, whoa, I didn't see that coming, Lord, but look what you did through it, right? He's amazing that way. He has, you know, that's why the Bible reminds us that our thoughts are not his thoughts and our ways are not his ways. He does stuff way different than we would. Trust me, if, if I was God and Jesus was rolling into Jerusalem during this time, it would look nothing like the Bible says it looked. would look nothing like that. In fact, uh, we find that the Jews were expecting something completely different than what actually happened. And I think there's a lesson in that for us. That sometimes we can get really comfortable with what we think we know, and we can shut ourselves off from the Holy Spirit and 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 allow the word of God to really talk to us because it's so familiar to us that we already know. And that can happen this morning because this story is not new. In fact, you've probably heard a gazillion messages. If you've been in the church for any period of time, you've probably heard lots of different messages on the triumphal entry of Jesus. But I would encourage you not to let the familiarity of the story stop you from hearing what God wants to say to you this morning. There is victory to be had in your life. The triumphal entry happened on a specific day. The day was the 10th day of Nisan. Does anybody know what that day represents in, in Jewish culture? Somebody tell me. It's the day that they chose the Passover lamb. 
would be the day that they would select their Passover lamb, and for four more days, they would inspect that lamb to make sure that lamb was unblemished, that it was perfect to be sacrificed on Passover. Isn't it interesting that it's that day that Jesus Christ rides into Jerusalem, the 10th day of Nisan? This is all done according to Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he, sh he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it, listen, until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. It is the 10th day of Nisan that the Lamb of God, chosen from before the foundation of the world, is riding into Jerusalem to present himself as the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world, the Passover Lamb. This is the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. You know, there are 89 chapters in the Bible relating to the 33 years of Jesus Christ's life. It's contained in four different gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and what we find in those 89 chapters, of those 89 chapters, we find 85 of them covering, listen, the last three and a half years of Jesus' life. That means we don't know much about Jesus until he's about 30 years old. So 85 out of the 89 chapters speak about the last three and a half years of Jesus' life. 29 of them, 29 chapters in the gospel messages cover the last week of his life. Interesting enough, the book of John, one half of the book of John is the last week of Jesus' life, one half of it. So when you read the book of John, the, the, the first part of, of it is dealing with Jesus and his daily activities in the thir first, th you know, th three and a half years. But the last half of the book talks about the last week that he's alive. If you want some details about Passion Week, you can grab the book of John and you can just start about right after uh, John chapter 11. You can begin to read about that. We also find that... Uh, Two-fifths of the book of Matthew, three-fifths of the book of Mark, and one-third of the book of Luke are dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. That's pretty important, it sounds like. Sounds like God really wants us to grasp what Jesus was doing the very last part of his life, the very last week of his life. Why do you suppose that's so important? I, I believe that it's so important because it speaks to us relating to the completion of of our mission. This is a missional God who sent Jesus on a mission and Jesus is right now about to fulfill the mission and God wants us to understand what that looks like in the last week of his life. 
and I want you to understand, how does that relate to you? Well, you're on a mission too. God has sent you on a mission. He wants to remind you of that this morning. Maybe you forgot the mission. The mission is to know Christ and to make him known, to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has uh, commanded. And, and so that is our mission, every one of us. It doesn't matter what your giftings are. Doesn't, that has nothing to do with the mission that you're on. And maybe this will help us be reminded this morning that we are on a mission. Jesus was faithful in that mission, even when it cost him much. So we're going to consider the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ this morning, and we'll consider how we can realize more of Christ's triumph in our lives. There's three things I want to share with you about the weight of victory from this account. The first, if you're taking notes, the weight of victory is marked with obedience. The weight of victory is marked with obedience. If, you're, if you aren't obedient, you will never realize the victory God has given you. Look at verse 28 with me there. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going to, up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Mount that is called all of it, he sent two disciples saying, go to the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why, its owners, plural, said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now, this is Sunday. And if you're a football fan, you know that Sunday is what? Game day. It's game day. This is game day for Jesus. This marks the beginning of the end of Jesus' life. And guess what? He knows it. He understands this. He knows the timing. He knows exactly what he's headed into. And does he... Does he divert from the plan? No. And in fact, he knows that he's going to suffer greatly. We'll see on Thursday night when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's asking the Father if there's any other way. Nevertheless, your will be done. He knows what he's headed into, folks. And yet, he is going to uh, complete it. This marks the end of the life of Jesus as he know, knows it on earth. What do I mean? Although he will be greatly praised in this week, he will also be greatly rejected. He will go from being completely free to incarcerated, from living to dead by way of crucifixion and then back to life again, all in a matter of a week. You think you had a tough week? Jesus can relate. He knows what a tough week is like. Here we find Jesus going up to Jerusalem after having dinner with Simon the leper, Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead, Mary and Martha, and many others in Bethany, according to John chapter 12, verse 1. Luke's gospel transitions us from Jericho to the Mount of Olives. There's no mention of a stop in Bethany, but John's gospel tells us that. Jesus is here in this moment on top of the Mount of Olives. I just want to show you a map of where Bethany, and, and you can see here, there's Bethany, there's Bethphage, and there's the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives there, which lines up with the Eastern Gate, which was the main entrance to the temple there. Jesus, on the Mount of Olives, he sends two of his disciples forward to some unnamed village. And he says, listen, there will be 
a donkey there waiting for uh, me, and no one's ever ridden on this donkey before, but it will be waiting for me. And when, when you go and get it, I'm going to ride into Jerusalem by way of the eastern gate. It's interesting that it's the eastern gate that he's coming through in the triumphal entry. As you, many of you prophecy students know, it's the eastern gate that Jesus will come again through. Now, this is interesting as well that, uh, you know, the Muslims since 18 or 810 A.D. have had a problem with this prophecy of the second coming of Christ through the eastern gate. So they've shut it down several times, and then sometime in the 15th or 16th century, do you know what they did? They walled it off. And so it looks like this today. You can see it. It's walled off there. There's no entrance into it as if that will stop Jesus <laughs> from coming through the eastern gate. It's so, so interesting. We are so bizarre. We, we have such complexes uh, when it comes to what, what we're capable of that that is just sheer stupidity. Listen, if Jesus is going to step on the Mount of Olives, it's going to crack in two. I'm pretty sure he can take care of that. I don't know. But, but nevertheless, it's the eastern gate. It's the golden gate. It's gate, the beautiful gate. All the same gate. And in fact, when now when you read the, 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 the um, Gospels and you read the book of Acts and you hear of the stories of, of the gate beautiful or the golden gate or the eastern gate, it's this gate that it's being spoken of. And it's this gate that Jesus is ready to uh, head down into. Now, notice the instructions here. They're explicit. Go to the village, find the donkey, untie it and take it. And if anyone says anything to you, just tell them the Lord has need of it. Now, where I come from, this is called stealing. But, you know, when you're God and everything belongs to you, this isn't stealing. This is taking back what's yours. So I guess that works out for Jesus. But, um, you know, here's the thing. This moment in time is pretty dependent upon the obedience of the disciples, isn't it? I mean, Jesus didn't say, hey, I'll go get it. No. He sent his disciples to go get it. If his disciples don't go get it, then what? I don't know because that didn't happen. But what I know is that victory came by way of obedience because his disciples did go. They did obtain that donkey and they did follow the instructions that they were given. What happens when we don't follow the instructions that were given, i.e. in the Bible? All these instructions that God has given us in his word. What happens when we don't follow those things? We fall. We sin. So obedience of God's word keeps us free. Psalm chapter 19 verse 11. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word keeps us from slipping. Psalm 37, 31. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The word keeps us from, uh, in the Great Commission, Jesus even mentions this important principle. Again, I already, already talked about the Great Commission, but in verse 20 there it says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We're to teach people to be obedient to the Lord. Why? Because that's how you find victory in your life. Some of us think that it's all these rules that God has put in our life because he's mean and he just wants to keep us from things. No, he wants to give you far more than you realize through being obedient to his word. He's not trying to keep you from it. The thing that he's trying to keep you from are things that are harmful for you. 
but he wants to bless your socks off, so he gave you a manual. He gave you Emmanuel, but he also gave you a manual. It's called the Word of God, so that you can navigate through life successfully and you can find victory in every situation and circumstance that you find yourselves in if you will be obedient. Not only were the disciples obedient, but Jesus himself was obedient to the will of the Father. Jesus is doing exactly what his Father has instructed him to do. This comes down to the very T of the prophecies given about how the Messiah would come. We see this in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Why is this day so important? Because it was prophetically given that this is the way that the king of Israel would come. Zechariah 9, 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Jesus was obedient to the Father. He was doing exactly what he was called to do. The disciples then, in turn, are obedient to Jesus. And here we have the navigation through the road to victory, all through obedience. This is an incredible sign that God is about to declare to everyone here in this moment. Because the sign, if you caught it in Zechariah's prophecy, it said, behold, your king is coming. This is a declaration to the Jewish community that their king is come. And his name is Jesus Christ. He, he's coming, uh, you know, to, to bring victory to the world, but in a very different way than, than they thought. You remember that his disciples struggled with when it would be time for him to set up his kingdom. And so they continually asked him, like, hey, is it time yet? Is it it's like your kids in the back seat, you know, hey, are we there yet? You're like, sure. No, not really, but you're like, of course we're not here yet. But, um, and Jesus is, uh, <laughs> Jesus is sort of doing that with his disciples. They want to know because they have a very different idea of what this triumphal entry is going to look like. They think that it's going to be roll out the red carpet, disperse the Romans from Jerusalem, the Jews are taking over, and here it is, and we're going to rule the world with Jesus. And in fact, it was James and John who were saying, can we sit at your right and left hand, the most powerful positions in, in your kingdom, Jesus? Because they thought it was coming like very, very soon, like, right in there, and, it, and the kingdom has come and is coming. What does that mean? Prophetically, it is fulfilled. It has come, past tense, but it is coming in the sense that there's a very real continual kingdom coming. When Jesus comes back, that will be fulfilled completely, and so the kingdom has come, but it is still coming, and the king showed up exactly the way the father said that he would. Now, in this culture, for a king to ride on the back of a donkey also states something very clearly to those whom are there in that city. It says that he's coming in peace. When he rides on a donkey into the Jerusalem, he says, I'm coming in peace. He's coming as the prince of peace, and he's coming to restore relationship for those who are estranged from the father, right? But in the second coming, he comes very differently. He comes on a horse. And in fact, in this culture, if a king were to ride into a town on a horse, it meant war. And guess what? 
Jesus means war when he comes again. He means war. But in this particular case, he's riding on a donkey to, to say something to people. I've come to bring peace. That is his mission. And, uh, uh, you know, many of those in this culture missed it. Why? It wasn't because they weren't informed. It's because they wouldn't allow their own perceptions of the idea of what God was saying through his word, you know, form them. They wouldn't allow God to form their theology. They formed their own theology and stuck with it. And in fact, now the Jews have what's called the Talmud, and they have all these different man-made writings that they honor above God's word. So they've said, hey, we're going to, God, we got this under control. We, we'll take your word from here now, and we'll, we'll make sure we understand it. And they totally missed it. And it's so sad. And if you talk to somebody who is steeped in Judaism, they are so arrogant about, about the Messiah and what he's going to look like. It's because they're blinded. That, you know, there's a reason why um, they're called stiff-necked. It's a reason why they're, called, they're, they're so hard-hearted. And of course, human beings are like that, but in particular, the Jews, because they think that they have it all down. And I'm afraid that some of us are the same, that we think that we have God's word so down that, that you know, we will hurt other people and divide with other people and we'll do all these things because we're so smart spiritually. You know, we're so, so scholarly. And I would just encourage you, listen, that's not the way Jesus was. When Jesus showed up, even though the Jews were stiff-necked and they were, they were angry and they, they were wanting to rattle his cage, he, he remained cool, collected, and he continued to speak the truth. He did rebuke them at times. But, but I promise you, it was in love. Never arrogant, never prideful, but always in humility. That's how we want to be. Victory came because of obedience, the, ob the obedience of Jesus first, then the obedience of his disciples. And if you want more victory in your life, it will come as a result of you being obedient to the word of God. Secondly, if you're taking notes, the way to victory is marked with sacrificial worship. Look at verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus, this, this colt, this foal of the donkey, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he, he was drawing near, already on the way down uh, from down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, bl saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The disciples are being fully obedient by bringing this cult to Jesus. And, and before he sits on it, they do something interesting. They take their cloaks off and they lay it on the virgin back of this donkey. This also is a sign. This is a sign of humility and honor. Listen, they were giving Jesus something very important to them, something that cost them something greatly, the outer garment, that the, the, the over jacket or whatever, the jacket that it, that it was in that 
culture was more than just a coat. You know, in the evening time, it would become the covering that they would lay themselves under to protect themselves from the elements. It was, that's why in the Mosaic Law, when you read about, you know, back in the Old Testament, you read about uh, if somebody gives you their cloak as security for, you know, maybe a loan that they're taking out or something, you're required to give it back to them in the evening. Why? Because it was their way of keeping warm or staying out of the elements or whatever. It was so important in this culture. For us, we just give somebody a jacket and go get a new one. It wasn't like that in this culture. These were very expensive and they were very important. And yet, what do we find them doing here? Sacrificing. Sacrificing something very dear to them, something that they cared about. They lay their cloaks over, not only on the back of the colt, but then on the ground as the colt tramples upon their, their cloaks that way. Listen, this is what sacrificial worship looks like. When you take something that it is necessary for you, you give in a way that it costs you something. That is sacrificial worship. When you do something far more, I'm going to give you an example of this here in a minute uh, through the life of David. There was a declaration being made by the disciples as they laid their cloaks on the back of that colt and on the ground there before them. And it was, it's found in 2 Kings 9.13. This is the first time this ever occurred. And here's what it says. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the, on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Not only is God declaring to man that Jesus is king, king, now we have the disciples who are also at the same time laying their cloaks down, doing what they found to do in 2 Kings chapter 9, declaring Jesus as king. The disciples here are doing the same thing. Not only that, but in Matthew's account then, we see that there are other people there. There's a great crowd of people, and they are cutting off palm branches and laying them upon the path. That's why we call this Palm Sunday. The palm branch represents goodness, well-being, and victory. There were palm branches carved uh, in, in the walls, uh, in the doors of the temple. They were often depicted on coins in important buildings. The de declaration is simple. Your victorious king is here. That's what this means. And so we have this procession of sacrificial worship continuing now as, as they begin to sing the messianic song of Psalm 118, in particular verses 25 and 26, where it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Bless, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They're proclaiming Hosanna which means save us or save now. It's interesting that they understand their need to be saved. Maybe not in the same way that God understands their need to be saved, and that's oftentimes the same case with us. We don't truly understand how badly we need to be saved because we don't fully comprehend sin and how that how much distance is between us and God. There is an eternity of distance between you and God. That's how badly we need to be saved. But they're saying, Hosanna, and they're saying, save now. But listen, 
they are also at the same time asking the Lord to bless them prosperously. Give us success, Lord. Come now, give us success. And the crowd obviously is joining into that. Yes, give us prosperity, Lord. Give us all these things. And of course, as the week goes on, the crowd turns against Jesus. Why? Because they're not experiencing what they thought they had. And that is the case with many people who pray a prayer where they say, oh, Lord, will you please just come into my life and give me salvation? And then, and, and then you know, a couple days later, they're like, where's the salvation? At? Where's the Lord? at? Where's the blessings in my life? How come I'm still experiencing all these things? Listen, I want to give you the straight truth about this. If you become a Christian, it gets harder, not easier. If, if you become a Christian, you're going against the grain, not with the grain. And so it becomes incredibly harder. I don't know who told you what, but at the end of the day, uh, salvation is not easier. And it's not for the weak. It's for those who are strong, who can endure to the end because it's tough. Sounds like I'm talking you out of this, doesn't it? It's like, wait a second, what is he doing here? I'm not talking you out of this. Here's the reality, though. There are many people in pulpits that will tell you that God will give you everything that you want. And let me tell you something, God will give you everything he wants. And he will make you like his son. And that is difficult at times. And in fact, Jesus said, that's why Jesus said, difficult is the way. And narrow is the path that leads to life. It is a hard life, but it's an awesome life. And there is no other reward to compare than being in right relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Like there's nothing that can compare to that. So there, although it's difficult, it is incredibly rewarding, incredibly rewarding. And um, so his disciples, they, they have a little mixed up view about what this is going to look like, but they are yet, nevertheless, they are praising the Lord. Listen, victory in your life comes through sacrificial worship. It comes through sacrificial worship. And I want to use the life of David as an example of this, many of you know the story when David became prideful as the king and he's like, you know, hey, let's number the people and see how great my kingdom is and all these kinds of things because I'm so wonderful and all this kind of stuff. I don't know if that was his mentality, but he certainly seemed a little prideful about taking this census. And in fact, even some of his right hand people were saying, David, don't do this. Don't do this, man. The Lord is not in this. Nevertheless, he goes forward and does it. And of course, you know, what happens, the Lord says, hey, David, because uh, you've gotten a little too arrogant, I'm going to give you a couple choices here. You can fall into the hands of man, and I can deal with you that way, or you can fall in my hands, right? I can, I can send a plague upon the land, and, and it's going to kill people. You're, it's going to cost you something either way. But since you're the one that, that ha this ha happened through, I'm allowing you to make that decision. What a tough choice. But he chose to follow the path of God because he knew him to be merciful. And so the Lord brings a plague upon the land and 70,000 people die in just a few days. Can you imagine that as a result of something you've done? 70,000 people die? What does David do? Go sulk in his room? No. He worships the Lord. He said, the only way out of this, the only way that I can find victory in this situation is to bring sacrificial worship before the Lord. So what does he do? He's sent by God to Aaronah, uh, the Jebusite, to build an altar on, on his threshing floor. And then Aaronah, he decides, hey, David, I'm just going to give you this land and you can do whatever you want. Here's what he said. This is so interesting. 2 Samuel chapter 2, 
24, verse 24 and 25. He said, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to my Lord, to the Lord my God, that cost me nothing. I will not take something and then offer it back to God. It's going to cost me something. I, I want to be sacrificial in my worship to the Lord. So David brought the, th the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And listen, so the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. How did victory come? Through sacrificial worship. Had David not come to the Lord in this manner, the Lord, the plague would not have averted Israel, but he, but he came through sacrificial worship. And look what happens. The Lord averted the plague from the land of Israel. Is God like wanting to punish us or for us to just get the point? I think he wants us to get the point. Here David got the point. And so he brings the offering before the Lord and the Lord said, David, you got the point, my friend. And so he averts from what he was doing there. Listen, you find that in, with the Lord a lot in Scripture, that he's going down a, a direction because of the hardness of man's heart, and then when man turns their heart back to the Lord in just hum, humble, in humility, uh, the Lord turns away from what he was doing. He's a gracious God. He's not trying to make your life hard. He's trying to make you holy. He's trying to make you more like Jesus. So interesting. Listen, if you are... Uh, here this morning and, and you're not experiencing the victory uh, in your life that you desire to experience, perhaps it's because you're not willing to sacrifice to get it. Maybe you're not willing to offer up, you know, some sort of sacrifice the Lord wants from you in order to receive it. You're not willing to humble yourself in a certain way. Oh, Lord, I'm, I'm strong enough to have the internet in my house. I'm not going to do that. And yet you're looking at stuff you shouldn't be looking at. The Lord says, humble yourself. Understand your weakness. You know, give yourself over to me in a certain way and watch and see what I do. You will find victory, but it will cost you something. And so if that's you here today, maybe the Lord's speaking to you about giving something up that is important to you, but the Lord says, listen, it's the only way. You want to have victory in your life. Here's how you have to do it. Sacrificial worship. Bring a sacrifice to him, and you will experience greater level of victory in your life. Notice, we find that not everyone was praising Jesus in this crowd. We find the Pharisees that were telling Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Uh, Jesus <laughs> says, listen, he said, I'm not going to do that because even if I did, the rocks from the ground would cry out. That would have been the very first rock concert, by the way, <laughs> in case you were wondering about that. I know you were, but it, and in fact, believe it or not, it was the very first rock concert because these were living stones that begin to praise the Lord. You're a living stone. And when you praise God, the rocks cry out. But there is the reality here that the earth itself moans and groans, longing for the Lord to come back, understanding their creator. They know who he is, and they know his worth. And, and the, the earth itself would cry out, praise Hosanna. Save us now. They, the, the earth longs to be saved by the Lord. They long to see his kingdom come. God will get praise 
no matter what, folks. But let it come from us, amen? So the way of victory is marked with obedience. It's marked with sacrificial worship. And lastly, we see that the way of victory is marked with awareness of the time. Look at verse uh, 41 here. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because, listen, you did not know the time of your visitation. The issue here is a matter of not knowing the time. Not knowing the time. The reason they don't experience the victory that they, that they should be experienced is because they don't understand the time. Uh, Jesus is sitting upon the ridge of the Mount of Olives here, looking over uh, Jerusalem on the eastern side of the temple, and he begins to weep. And I've been up there, and I've seen from the, from the Mount of Olives looking over in over the valley, um, you know, and, and seeing the, the eastern gate over there and wondering how Jesus sat there and he began to just weep over this city. This is supposed to be a triumphal entry. This is supposed to be an incredibly joyful thing. And yet Jesus doesn't miss the purpose of his mission. He's coming because people are rejecting God. They're unwilling to be obedient to the Father, and that's, what, that's why we're in this mess in the first place. Total disregard for God's word. Do not eat of this tree. Oh, God didn't really mean that. That's Satan. A battle against God's word, and here we are today, and we struggle with the same thing. God's word doesn't really mean that. We should be able to love whoever we want to love or do whatever the case is, whatever the circumstance is that's contrary to wi- the way it's written in the Bible. It's deception. And that w- is, is what causes us pain and difficulty and estrangement from the Father. Jesus, you know, when he was at the tomb of Lazarus, Seeing what sin produces, death. The wages of sin is death. Here he is at the tomb of one of his best friends. His, 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 you know, these ladies, his sisters are weeping. They're crying out. And Mary, of all people who is a worshiper of Jesus, comes to him in that moment and says, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. This is your fault. Whoa. Sometimes we take that attitude with Jesus. Jesus, also in that moment, began to weep. It's the, it's the shortest verse in the Bible. He wept. He wept. Why was he weeping? The ramifications of sin. Death. Here we have Lazarus in the tomb. Does Jesus know he's going to raise him from the dead? I'm pretty sure he does because he calls him right out of, of the, the tomb. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead, and yet he's weeping. He knows what's going to come as a result of him riding to Jerusalem, being crucified on a cross, and rising again from the dead. He knows all of that, and yet here he is weeping. Why is he weeping? 
because of the pain that sin causes in our lives. Because of the estrangement that it causes between us and him. This is, this is like the father's heart for his creation right here and also in John chapter 11 where at the tomb of Lazarus where Jesus is literally showing his humanity but at the same time revealing the heart of the father to us. He weeps. He weeps at the fact that people reject him. And he understands that although he raised Lazarus from the dead, and he understands that although he will ride into this town making declaration that he's king, that he's come to, come to bring peace, right? And yet he knows that multitudes of people will reject him. Multitudes of people will choose uh, something other than Jesus. And they will, be, they will perish forever. I promise you this goes far beyond the grave. This goes far beyond, uh, you know, what sin produces, not just physical death, but this goes to the second death, which is eternal damnation, you know, completely and totally separated from God from, for all of eternity. That's where these tears come from. Jesus understands sin far more than we do. And here he is weeping over this city, knowing that in just a few days, the crowds that are praising him are going to be saying, crucify him. The same people. He knows all of these things, and so he weeps over Jerusalem. This is the way to victory. He understands that, but it's only going to be for a few because only a few will accept him as Messiah and King. Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jew, and he's foolishness to the Gentiles. So, majority of people think Jesus is a fake. They don't believe in him, and that's still presently today the situation. Many follow the road that leads to destruction. You know, th this concept of America being, you know, 80-some percent Christians, I don't see it. If that's the case, it's a very different Christianity than I read about in the Bible. This isn't Christianity at all, in fact. Listen, we can call ourselves whatever we want to call ourselves. That's irrelevant. What's going to matter is, have you settled the score uh, before the Father? Has your debt paid or not? And if it is not, you will experience destruction, just like Jesus is telling the Jews here. Eternal destruction. I imagine when he is saying these words, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He's crying when he says these words. He's there to make peace. He wants to be your peace, not just eternal peace, but present peace. He wants to bring peace within. He wants to bring peace with the Father. He wants to bring peace in relationships that you have but you have to let him be lord of all of those things i came to make peace if only those in jerusalem would have been aware of the time if they would have taken into consideration the time of their visitation and the prophecy the 70 week prophecy given by daniel if they would have considered this and allowed the Holy Spirit to speak directly to them, 
in this res result, they would not have responded the way they did on Friday. They would not have responded to that in that way. God, there is an appointed time for everything. God is outside of time and space. We understand that. And yet he operates within time and space. And he has a, he's sovereign over time and space. And he has specific things that he's doing. But there is an appointed time. And Jesus knew his appointed time was now. But, but do you know before this, whenever he did something miraculous or, you know, did, did anything, remember his first miracle? At, uh, made turned water into wine at the in, in Cana. Remember, he said, "Shh, don't tell anybody." And he continued to do that as he went through and did different miracles. He kept telling people, "Don't tell anybody anything about who I am." Why? Because his time had not yet come. And yet now his time's come, and now he's going to reveal himself as the King of Israel. And yet many people they they miss the time, but God had given it clearly in Daniel chapter 9. We're going to read this in verse 24 through 26. Many of you know the verses. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgressions, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint the most holy place. We begin with the purpose of this prophecy. Here's the point. God's going to deal with sin, he's going to set things in order, and he's going to restore Israel to be the most holy place in the world. This is what he's going to do. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. So here we have God giving us a complete a pr prophetic calendar. Starting at the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which happened, you, all you know, a as a result of the Babylonian captivity and the children of Israel were, were in captivity and then they were sent back by the Medo-Persians to go and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, there's many different time points in which they were sent back. But the only one that gives authority to restore not just the temple, but also to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem is Artaxerxes in 445 B.C., March 14th. And so here we have the, this 70-week prophecy beginning there now a week if you're not familiar with a week in the book of daniel represents a seven year period so we have seven weeks and then 62 weeks which is 69 weeks everybody following me with the math 69 seven week 
uh, seven-year periods. That's 483 years. So 483 years from the point in which Artaxerxes gave the word to Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 2 to go restore Jerusalem and to rebuild it to the coming of the prince who is the Messiah. Uh, and in particular, the coming of the Messiah presenting himself as king happens to be April 6, 32 AD, which is the very day Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on this donkey. You see, if they would have, if the Jews would have taken the 70-week prophecy and said, this is a timeline that God has given us, God doesn't keep us in the dark, contrary to popular belief. And in fact, he's pretty open about what he's going to do. And he says right here, hey, there's a time frame, and here's the time frame, 483 years from this point in time. And this is what's going to happen. You're going to see the prince, the Messiah, come. Who is the Messiah? He's the king of the Jews. And yet here we have Jesus presenting himself to the day, riding to Jerusalem, presenting himself as a king, everybody around him declaring, you're the king. And yet people missed it. People missed it. They were not, it's not that they weren't aware of the time, but they rejected the way that God wanted to do this. And that is a sad situation. You can look this up later if you want to, to find out how that calculation works. But Sir, A Sir Robert Anderson is the one who came up with that calculation down to the day of Jesus riding into, the, um, into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. He uses a 360-day calendar, which was the common calendar used in Daniel's day. And so you can check that out later. But, but this is incredibly amazing. But it's prophetic. God knows everything that's going to happen, and he can make those declarations because he's God. And yet, here we have people even to this day saying the disciples made this up. They, they, they made all of this up and orchestrated all of this in order for them to say, see, this prophecy was fulfilled. This was written 500 years beforehand, by the way, which many people also try and discount the book of Daniel and say that it wasn't written 500 years prior, but it was written during the time of the disciples, and they were just kind of making stuff work. Listen, I don't know if you've read the entirety of the Bible from cover to cover, but it is so intertwined. There's no way that, that a man could make this book up. I mean, you know, there, there's no way, written over 1,500 years, 40 different authors, there's no way that this could have been a collaboration of man. No way. There's no way. I, I challenge you to read it. And I challenge you to, con to consider it because it is amazing. But yet here we have this. We have Jesus fulfilling part of this prophecy. And in fact, he fulfilled the majority of that prophecy, didn't he? And yet there's one week left. And that week is upon us, folks, very soon. This is the seven-year tribulation period. And... Uh, we're, I, you know, we, we teach a pre-tribulation rapture. We don't believe that we're going to be here as the church, not because we think that God's going to pull us out to, to cause us to escape from those things, but we believe that, that the wrath of God was satisfied upon the cross, that Jesus drank the cup of wrath. And so 
it makes no sense for the wrath of God to be poured out upon his church when the wrath of God has already been poured out upon our Savior. So we, we teach a tr pre-tribulation rapture. You're free to believe whatever you want, and that's fine. You know, we'll, we'll catch you on the way up and tell you you were wrong, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and all of a sudden, they're like, I'm leaving this church. And it, listen, it's really not that important. We'll all find out when it happens. But, but, but it is important to understand that the timing, and that's, that's the point of what Jesus was saying. They did not understand the timing of their vegetation. I think there are people in this world that don't understand the timing. I mean, the prophetic time clock is like this, folks. This, we're not on the minute hand, the hour hand, the minute hand. We're on the second hand. And, you know, we believe Jesus is coming back very, very soon. And you can see it by what? By the signs of the times. Look around. You see, you know, the, the world is positioning itself to become a one-world government. You see this one-world currency happening. We have, listen, we are on, I'm not trying to scare you, but we're on the verge of economic collapse. And this isn't conspiracy theory. But this is not being talked about either, very, very freely. And so, you know, don't be, don't be deceived in thinking that the government's writing you checks because they just want to be nice to you. Listen, the government's writing you checks because they're trying to keep you preoccupied. They're trying to keep your minds off the real issue, which is the signs of the times. The devil is an incredible deceiver, and all of this is deception. It was deception in the Garden of Eden. It's deception in the Old Testament. It's deception in the New Testament. It's deception even right now. It's all deception of the enemy. And that's going to continue, but there is a seven-year period that we are waiting to happen, and, and, and then Jesus will come back. Here's the thing is, no one knows the day or the hour in which the Son of Man will appear. We don't know when he will come rapture his church, but we know exactly when he will come back and take reign in Jerusalem because it's three and a half years in the seven-year tribulation period. You can set your clock to it. You can set your calendar to it, and you can watch them. Well, we'll be watching. We'll be coming with him, but you, that's exactly what will happen because it's already written in the prophetic timeline that God gave Daniel. Daniel's like, Lord, can you reveal all this stuff to me? And in fact, Daniel chapter 12, he said, Daniel, these things are not for you. Shut the books up. They're for somebody else, and they're for you and I. They're for the nation of Israel. They should have been keeping track of this. And so Jesus sitting there, you know, weeping over the, 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 the Jerusalem there, understanding all of these things are about to transpire, and these guys have no clue. They have no idea. They're under Roman rule still, you know, which was, by the way, a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and them being under the, the fourth governmental rule, which in the last days there'll be one more kingdom, a, a revived Roman empire probably that will come about. And the Antichrist will be, he's the one that, that the world is looking for. We're not looking for the Antichrist, we're looking for Jesus Christ. And so, you know, it's interesting, but Jesus said he wished that they weren't in this situation, but, but here's the key words, you were not willing you were not willing. You didn't want to know. And it's so sad to me that people, when you start to talk to them about the Lord, they say, no, no, no I don't, don't want to hear that. They are not willing. It's a hardness of heart. It's an unwillingness to hear the truth. And that is the saddest state of a human being. 
is the place where they do not want to know the truth. Just tell me what I want to hear. I don't want to hear the truth, though. We read that throughout the, the kings of Israel. The, the prophets and, and all of these people would tell the king what he wanted to hear. And he didn't want to hear the truth, though. You have that with Ahab. Sad situation. But here's what I am here to tell you. Here is the truth. That the time is upon us. They missed it, but you don't have to. You know, they, they didn't see Jesus coming as in this triumphal entry. You know, we're looking backwards. Uh, they, were, they were experiencing it presently, but we're looking backwards. And yet, how can we still miss it? We're looking backwards at this moment. So I want to encourage you this morning, man, if, you are, if you're in that place where you're not in right relationship with the Lord, that today be the day that you do that. Because, listen, um, it's a matter of will. Are you going to live for his will or your will? Because he'll let you do whatever you want to do. But listen, one will separate you from him, and one will draw you near to him. The question is, which one are you going to choose? You know, he's given you the ability to, 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 you know, although we're saved by grace through faith, and that faith is not of yourselves, it's a gift from God. The faith even to believe is from God. You still have a responsibility to respond to the gospel. And you have to call upon his name. And if you have not done that yet, then, you know, you're hearing this message right now. Then you know what? It's a matter of will. Are you willing? God is willing to save you. God loves you so much that he created all of this from the foundation of the world, knowing exactly how this was going to play out, folks. He knew exactly what was going to happen, and he orchestrated a Savior, his Son, to come, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, clothed in human flesh, to come and to become our Savior to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The only thing stopping you from being reconciled to God is yourself, is your own will. And so God wants, I want to encourage you this morning, if you don't know the Lord, that today be the day that you say, Lord, I give up. I yield myself to you, just everything that I am. I don't want to live my life, <laughs> you know, any longer according to my own will. I want to live according to your will. That is the only way that you will find true victory, folks. And, but I promise you that if you do that, uh, you will truly experience heaven on earth to the, to the greatest degree that you can. And what I mean is not that your life won't be difficult, but even in the difficulty, there'll be an incredible peace that surpasses all understanding. There will be a joy that is, is not being able to be rivaled by any circumstance or situation. Listen, I don't know how people do it without the Lord. I don't know how people navigate through this life without Jesus because it's hard on everybody. You know, even when God allows us to do whatever we want and we're having fun in our sin, there's a cost to that. And one of these days, our sin becomes our taskmaster and it controls us and we can no longer get out of those things. That's where we need the shackle remover, Jesus Christ, to come in and give us victory. And he wants to do that this morning, he wept over Jerusalem, and I believe that the Lord is weeping over the world even right now. You know, I mean, it's not, not the cliche when, you know, it's raining, the angels are crying. That's not the case. 
but I do believe that the Lord is desperately seeking to save that those who are lost. He does not want you to experience life without him. He wants you in heaven, and he's done everything that he can to make you, make a way for you. If you're a believer here today, here's the reality is that, you know, you've been given victory, and you probably are experiencing certain levels of victory in your life, but here's the reality, there's more. The Lord wants to give you more. Um, you, you don't have to settle for less. You can settle for the entirety of what God wants for you in your life today. You know, I love that we, um, um, we started off with that first song, Who Am I That the Highest King Would Welcome Me? You know, just to, if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. We quote that verse all the time, and yet how many of us truly can say, yeah, I'm free indeed. Listen, if you're like me, and I know you are, because nothing is overtaking you except for what is common to man. There's things in your life that you need to be set free of today. And the Lord wants to do that in your life. But it comes by a specific path. It comes through obedience, through sacrificial worship. And it comes through um, staying in tune to the times. Because if you're in tune to the times, your life is going to change. You're going to live in obedience and sacrifice. Because you understand that you're going to stand before the Lord very soon. So if you're a believer here today, I want to encourage you, man, there is more for you. You just reach out and receive it from the Lord this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this triumphal entry of Jesus that we have begun now of this Passion Week, Lord, where you are fulfilling everything that you said you would do to bring salvation to mankind. Jesus Christ came into the world as God in human flesh. He was Emmanuel, God with us. And he lived a sinless life all the, all the way up until his 33 and a half years before he went to the cross. And he is sinless in, these, in this moment on this Sunday, Psalms, Palm Sunday, where he is riding triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where he is about to bring victory by way of his own crucifixion to all who would look to him, who would call upon his name. And so, Lord, will you humble our hearts this week? And will you help us to walk the road that Jesus walked in these, these last days of his life? And may they become our story, Lord, as we are obedient to you in everything that you call us to do. Lord, that it, we are willing to sacrifice no matter the cost to bring true and honorable worship before you, Lord. And that we do not forget that there is timing involved in all of this, that our days are numbered. And there is a day that we will stand before you. And so will you come by your Holy Spirit right now, Lord, and bring whatever is necessary in our lives that we can experience all the victory that you died to give us. And so we lift these things up to you. And as we continue to pray, if you're here this morning, you don't have a relationship with the Lord, you want a relationship with the Lord, if you're online or listen to this later, li listen, today is the day. Do not put this off. Time is short. The Lord wants you to come into right relationship with him. If you are that person, will you lift your hand up? I want to pray a prayer with you. You just lift your hand up, and I want to pray a prayer of salvation for you this morning. God bless you. Is there anybody else? 
Listen, the Lord wants to redeem your life. Today is the day of salvation. If you're here today and you don't have, you don't know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven, lift your hand up and you pray that prayer today. Jesus wants to save you. Anyone else? Well, listen, will you pray that prayer with me this morning? Lord Jesus, I come before you and I accept you as my Savior. God, I'm answering the call that you have on my life to be saved. Thank you for the faith to believe in you this morning. And I ask you, Lord, deliver me from my sins. Forgive me for all that I've done and change my life. Today I'm giving myself wholly over to you. Not my will, but your will be done. I believe that, Jesus, you died on the cross, that you rose again from the dead, and I give my life to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, somebody came to the Lord today, and you know what? All of heaven rejoices when one sinner comes to repentance. All of heaven rejoices. This is an amazing thing to come to the Lord in that way. And Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.